This is time when uh, children can be dismissed at Children's Church. Kindergarten through fifth grade. You can see the Karawalskis in the back. Well, we're uh, at the time in our service where we turn our attention to the scriptures. And we are studying in 1 Corinthians, and we'll be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, it is our practice to take a book of the Bible and to march through it. Uh, for a normal course of our diet, we'll do that. We uh, will look at uh, topics and, and issues and jump around some, but uh, we understand that God's Word is profound. It is God's instruction to us. Uh, scripture says that God's word is God breathed and it's very, the very words of God that are given to us. And so we want to take them as they're uh, revealed in scripture. And so we study books of the Bible and we study sections of that book. And that takes us to, to the topics that just appear in that book. And uh, I would say that if I were to uh, be picking the sermons throughout the scriptures. I don't know that uh, this is not one that I would immediately be drawn to because uh, I grew up in a traditional home that, you know, we, we didn't talk about sex and that kind of stuff. And so uh, uh, maybe it's not a topic that uh, I usually am drawn to, but uh, we are running into that topic in 1 Corinthians and I am convinced that we need to hear God's Word on this topic. If you remember, we started talking about the topic of sex and sexual immorality and the view of the church and the practice of the church last week. We'll talk a bit about it this week. We'll talk significantly about it this week. And we'll talk about it again next week. So it's kind of a three-part series, but it's Paul's three-part series in the letter of Corinthians. And we're going to be looking at this. And if you can recall from last week, or I'll fill you in if you weren't here last week. Last week in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12 through 20, the issue was that the church was birthed and was growing and was existing in a sex-crazed culture. Corinth was, was known for... Uh, uh, the temple of Aphrodite and uh, prostitution was uh, widespread. It was the normal course of behavior. Um, there was an expectation that that would be happening in people's lives, that there was a place for marriage relationships, which gave you children and social standing and heirs. But then there was sexual pleasure that was outside of marriage. And the Corinthians were beginning to think that, well, this should be an adopted course of action. That there, there wasn't really any problem with this. But if you remember in chapter 6, verses 10 through 20, Paul says, absolutely not. That, that shouldn't be part of the Christian experience. But I also pointed us to chapter 7, verse 1, the section we're going to read. And there is a uh, uh, kind of a, a statement or a belief, um, what would you call it, a slogan is what I called them last week, uh, about sex that was 
permeating the church in Corinth as well. And it's the opposite side of just you can, you're free and open to have sexual relations with anyone outside of marriage. This one went the opposite way, swung the pendulum the, uh, all the way to the other side and said sexual relations in themselves are bad. And that's what we see in chapter 7, verse 1. And so what we're uh, encountering in this message today, and I, and I feel a little uh, uh, sad that maybe I bit off more than I can chew because there is so much here. I would encourage you to read this passage and think about it, but there are certain points of behavior and guidelines that God gives us in our sexual lives and in our new relationship with Christ that Paul gives to that first century church that are relevant for us, that teach us important things. And that's what we need to hear today, and I'm going to try to do a good job on those. But there is confusion in our world. There is confusion about the roles of sex, and there's a disconnect about our experimentation and participation in sex in our lives and the revelation of God's Word. And this can be seen early on in high school and in college. There was a man named Luke Witt, who is a Presbyterian pastor in North Carolina, who says that couples come to him to uh, be married and engage uh, premarital counseling. And he asked them about their sexual behavior and activity because he wants them to cease and desist if they're engaged in sexual uh, relationships as a couple before they're married because of biblical basis, of course. And what he's fine is predominantly, by far, people, almost 90%, are coming in to get married who are already having sexual relationships with one another. If you remember back in 1990, there was a movement called True Love Waits. And this was a movement where they were trying to encourage high school students to be abstinent, to wait, not to engage in sexual behavior before their marriage because marriage is the place for that sexual behavior. And they would sign a pledge card saying... We believe that true love waits. I make a commitment to God, myself, my family, my friends, my future mate, and my future children to be sexually abstinent from this day until the day I enter into a biblical marriage relationship. In 2002, there was a study done of 6,800 students who were virgins, male and female, who took this pledge and were likely to abstain from sex, what they found that it took them 18 months longer to engage in sex after signing this card. So the, the organizers of this True Love Waits were happy that there was some improvement but as we think about it, it's still very troubling because what you have is young people entering into sexual relationships outside of marriage when they're 19 instead of 18, some year or so. 
In 2003, researchers from North Kentucky University found that 61% of the students who signed an abstinence commitment card broke their pledges, 61%. 39% of the ones that kept their pledges said that they had sexual experiences that were just short of intercourse that would have produced a baby. We are extremely confused. And we're not necessarily committed to the biblical view of sex. And I'm afraid, then this is on me as well, that my hesitancy to address this topic is probably one of the reasons I didn't want to do 1 Corinthians because I'm going to talk about this topic. <laughs> my hesitancy has not been a benefit to the church. And our hesitancy to talk about sex and the proper place uh, where sex should be experienced and what sex means has not been discussed in the church. Now, I know that in our youth programs, we've regularly talked about that, and, and I'm encouraging parents to talk about that with your kids as, as maybe uncomfortable it is, it, 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 as it is. But this area of our life in our culture is out of whack. We continue to see this even with older people. I'm not just picking on high school students and college students. With older people, marriage was pretty predominant in the 1960s. 72% of people of marriageable age had gotten married. But in 2010, 10, we are down to 51%. And the difference is that people are cohabitating, living together as married, with all the benefits and all the experiences of married people, but no commitment and no marriage. That's about 7.5 million couples in America. Marriage is still on uh, a hard road because in the 2010 census, 2009 census, first-time marriages were still ending in divorce at a rate of 50%. And there isn't a gigantic... There's some difference in the church, but not near as big a difference as there should be. Some kids have grown up in the context where marriage is not seen at all, that they have only experienced single moms and single dads. There is no shortage of broken marriages, and this should be a concern for us. And these kind of confusing and troubling signs cause us to need to give attention to what the Scriptures teach us about marriage and about relationships and about sex and so I've entitled the message today, Sex, Marriage, and Our Calling. It's a big section of Scripture, but I hope to uh, be able to take us through it. And there's so much more to learn about this passage, but at least I hope it whets your appetite to reread. And, and I'm always available. Our staff is always available. Our church is available, needs to be available to talk about these issues. So this will not be the last and final word. My hope is it's a beginning of a conversation that needs to continue. 
But there are some directives, some instruction. Now, it's interesting, in this chapter 7, verses 1 through 24, which we're going to cover, Paul gives some direction, some command about sex, marriage, divorce, and singlehood, singleness. But he doesn't give them in a, a, a true or false kind of fashion. He understands and recognizes throughout this section that there are complications and differences and some people can do one thing and another person can do another thing. Some are gifted with singleness and some are gifted with being married and that there is some differences amongst our experience as believers. But that there are some guiding principles that must be seen as true and right and good and beautiful in the church. And that must be demonstrated in our relationships, whether we are single or whether we are married. And these principles are what are arising from the text. Now, I will say that chapter 7 begins... If you remember uh, last week, I said uh, chapter 6, 12, or I just said this morning in the first part, that in the first uh, chapter 6, 12 through 20, that their approach to sexual relations was that it was kind of free and open, and we're free in Christ, we're forgiven. Therefore, we can go and have enjoyment with the prostitutes that is common and commonplace in Corinth, and it's not a problem. Chapter 7, that's kind of like the free sex movement. And here is the, uh, the cloistered movement or the re rejection of sex. No sex movement is what we find in chapter 7. So what you have here is the Corinthian church trying to grapple with all of the pressures of sexual beliefs and practices of the culture around them and how do we as a church, how does the church at Corinth Stand for the truth. And that's exactly the same place we're at, is it not? We have all kinds of beliefs about our sexual lives, our sexual expression, our sexual preferences, and they are all putting weight on the church. And the church is kind of all over the place and trying to decide how to respond to this culture. And what we need to do is hear Paul's instruction as best we can. And so let's look at this. And so... What I meant to say was chapter 7 is actually uh, maybe something we don't actually run into. So look at chapter 7, verse 1. What I call this verse, first verse is point number 1 in my message. The distortion of sex as bad and sinful and is missing God's design. And so chapter 7, verse 1 says, if you'll read with me, Now for the matters you wrote, uh, you wrote about. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Here Paul is transitioning in 1 Corinthians to address matters that the Corinthians have written to him about. And one of those matters was the church's belief, or some in the church who are saying that we live in a sex-crazed world and there is all kinds of problems and, and there are people wanting to bring uh, free sex into the church. What we need to do is just say sexual relations with a woman is bad, period. 
So there was this distortion going on. There was a distortion of sex anytime, anywhere, and with anyone to no sex at no time and at no place. Um, and the church is struggling to figure out where to land. Now, Paul hears this, repeats this back to them as a slogan that's in the church. It is not good for a man to have sexual relations with a woman. And says instead, verse 2, But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. So Paul recognizes there is an abundance of immorality in the area of sex. Paul is not willing to follow those people in the Corinthian church and just throw sexual relationships out the window. Paul is pointing the church back to what is proper, what is right, and what is beautiful. He's not willing to say it's bad and sinful, but he wants to point to God's design. And that's what we see in verse 2 through 5. The full expression of sex in marriage is good and right. So let's read 2 through 5. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fully uh, should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So here we see the full expression of sex in marriage as good and right. Now, what would be so amazing about this passage, what would strike the men of Corinth, was that in centuries past, in the first century, when this was written, men would be horrified to say, what? I have a duty and an obligation to my wife? I am the leader of the household, am I not? And in this way, I think Paul is clearly correcting the day, the first century, in, in the Corinthian church, their opinions about the difference between men and women in marriage, and that there is a mutuality that should happen in a marriage relationship. Think back with me to chapter 6. Uh, chapter 6, uh, verse, uh, verse 16. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. Paul argues in chapter 6 that you can't have just sexual relationships with anybody and at any time because God designed sexual relationships for a special union, a marriage union between a man and a woman where they become one flesh together. 
And we talked about this last week a little bit. What does that mean? That's not just that they have a physical encounter together. That would be redundant. That they would become one flesh. That the whole person of one spouse would be given as the whole person of the other spouse to one another in the context of a marriage relationship and that there would be union and communion and a sharing and a vulnerability and a, and a, and a uh, one fleshness. There would be union together. And that's the context in which sex is good and right and beautiful. And fleshing that out is to say what Paul says in chapter 7, that the man has an obligation and a responsibility to the wife. Because it's not just a physical relationship, it is a union of life, of whole persons to one another. And you become together one flesh. And to the wife, you have an obligation and a responsibility to the husband. Not just to do a physical act, but to bond your lives together and to be wholly one. It's the beauty of sex in the marriage context that God has said is beautiful and good. It is a way in which the husband and the wife serve one another. And as Paul will say in a little bit later, it is also a protection. Well, not really a little later. Look at verse 2. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. Because sexual immorality, the temptation of sexual sin is all around us, what is the protection for that kind of environment? The protection is a married relationship where you enjoy sexual relationships with one another. One of the illustrations that I've used for guys, I've never really used it for girls, sorry. But I want to share it, so you probably can relate to it. For guys, I often think of their sexual desire as a bunch of wild horses running everywhere. And it's almost like guys can see anything or experience anything, and it can arouse them sexually for some reason. And so it's, I see it as wild horses And what God does is give us a marriage context, a relationship with one person. And that what God wants from Christian men is to channel, to harness up and bring and corral all them wild horses that are flying all over the place and bring them right into a channel to that one special person. And what we do as men is we let it just kind of like we have a few horses, we run down that way, and they're all running all over the place. That is not God's view. God says if you want a life fulfilled sexually in your experience, you learn to bring all of them horses, you give all of your energy, you don't let horses go running off one way or the other, this place or that place, you don't let yourself go looking on the internet for pornography or anything else, you bring all of them horses together and channel them towards your wife. And the wives, you do the exact same thing because it's in the context of a marriage relationship where the beauty of sex and the rightness of sex can be experienced. And it's important 
that you make everything move in that direction. So Paul is saying and that husbands and wives, you both have a responsibility to one another. I remember hearing Howard Hendricks, kind of an older uh, teacher from Dallas Seminary, saying that one of the things he always did in his premarital counseling, couples would come in 20 years old, and he would say to them, just so you know, when you say I do, and you become a committed couple in marriage together, you also commit to have sex with one another throughout your whole lives. Just remember. Because you're no longer independent. You're no longer your own. And your expression of sexual relations helps nurture and care for your spouse as well as it does for you. It is a relationship of mutual growth and maturity, responsiveness together. So the full expression of sex in marriage is good and right. And one of the things that's difficult about this is that there's always some difficulties and there's things that happen. It's not that you're demanding sex or you're holding, you know, that, that says that you can't hold sex back as a punishment or something like that. You have an obligation, but it, it also means that you don't just demand sex and it's a, an impersonal thing. It's bringing your whole lives together and in the midst of sharing and caring for one another, you enter into sexual relationships that are good and holy and right. I think of C.S. Lewis put it this way in his excellent little book, The Four Loves. Lust is going after the body. Love is going after the person. If an individual is passionate about someone just for her body, that means he doesn't love that person. He just wants the body. The Bible shows that sex is a beautiful gift of sharing, companionship, commitment, growth, and maturity for both people in a marriage relationship. That's why we love marriage so much. So, it is beautiful and it is right in marriage. Third, Paul says to the unmarried, consider remaining single but be watchful. Verses 6 through 9. I say this as a concession and not as a command. Remember I said this section Paul is suggesting things. He's not commanding things. These are not rules. I say this as a concession, uh, as a, uh, I say this as a concession, not a command. I wish that all of you were as I am. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So Paul is just opening up the idea, something for you to think about if you're single that this is a concession, not a command. That, but regardless, if you're single, still this should be your mindset. Paul is saying, be like me. Paul was single. Paul was probably a widower, 
but he was single. And he advocates for being single. He appreciates, sees the benefits for being single in his own life because he can fully dedicate himself to the work of ministry and to the Lord. And we'll see this next week in the other next passage. But he is suggesting that you don't set your focus on getting married. Don't make your life dependent on getting married. Don't make your happiness, your growth, and your satisfaction dependent on whether you are in a relationship. What's beautiful about the Christian life is that God becomes our companion. Christ becomes our brother. And that that relationship, the New Testament says, can give us all that we need for life and godliness. And so Paul is saying, don't short sell what God has done in your life. If you are single, be open to God's work and direction in your life. If singleness is just a phase, if you are moving towards getting married, that's not bad. But don't as a single person, think it's all about marriage, that you'll get life when you get married. Think about your singleness as an opportunity to give of yourself fully to God, to His work of service, to growing as a Christian, to being used in ministry. And God will provide for your life as you need it. And Paul is a testimony to that. Now, in the last part, of course, end of verse 9, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Paul, uh, uh, so that is, if you're single and you're always thinking about the relationship, if you're always thinking about your sexual desires, if you're always thinking about companionship, maybe you don't have what he says in verse 7. But each one of you has his own gift from God. Paul says that he has the gift of singleness. Paul's encouraging all singles to think and be open to the idea that God's given you the gift of singles. But if he did not live single, always thinking about the marriage relationship he's hoping to have or the the intimate relationships he's missing and longing for, that has to come as a resolution in your own heart. And Paul says, if that never comes, then don't feel bad about getting married. I had a good friend. Now, what, 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 what I'm most concerned about is I had a good friend in uh, Racine, Wisconsin, where I grew up when I was going to seminary. And it, there was a guy there who was uh, an executive for Case IH. And he worked in the home office there. Uh, he was about 53 years old. He was single his whole life. And he was very dedicated to, in the Bible church that he went to. He was an elder at that church. But there was always a little rumbling in the church against him because he was single. I think that that is a terrible tragedy. I was benefited by his desire to commit himself solely to the work of ministry, not to focus on finding a relationship or finding a family, but just to be involved in ministry. And the Lord took him down this path, and then he spent his life pouring into people's lives in spiritual ways, in in ways where he loved and encouraged. I would say I learned 
a prayer life from that guy. And it was a shame that we looked as if he was insufficient because he's single. Well, we must know Paul was single. Jesus never got married. We should never look down on someone who's single. We need to include them. They need to be a part. I'm, I'm afraid we, as the evangelical church, are so prone to celebrate marriage that we leave our singles alone on the side, not feeling like they have a part. We need to change that. We need to be a church where we accept people and believe that the most important thing in a person's life is not whether they're married, not their social standing, not their job or anything else, but that they're followers of Christ. We take them and we believe them and God is working in their lives. And we bless them and include them and make them a part. So to the unmarried, consider remaining single, but be watchful. To the married, this is a little more difficult section, verses 10 through 17. To the married, don't divorce. Remain as you are when you were called. Let's read verses 10 through 17. To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say this, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through the wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but it, as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstance. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Now, I know there's a lot there. Simply, it is that divorce is not acceptable. Divorce should not be entered into by believers. Now, what is going on here that he would bring this up? This really does go back to Verse 1 of chapter 7. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And what, what's really going on here is if people are married in the church and they're having sexual relations with their spouse, maybe they should get divorced because you don't want to have you shouldn't have sexual relations with a woman. You see how it's playing out? But Paul's against that. That's not true. We've just talked about how in marriage, sexual relationship is good. And that if one of you becomes a believer and your spouse does not, that does not cancel out marriage. Remember, marriage, as he refers to Jesus, like in verse 12, to the rest I say this, I, uh, no, oh, sorry, wrong verse, verse 10. To the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord. What is he saying there? He's saying that 
the Lord Jesus, when he was here, he spoke on this topic. And when the Lord Jesus was here and spoke on this topic, he pointed to the, the creation mandate in chapter 2 of Genesis where it says a, father, a, 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 a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two will become one flesh. The very passage that Paul quoted in chapter 6. One flesh. The whole idea. And that was way before, early on in Genesis. Now that creation mandate applies to all humans, believers and unbelievers. Marriage is to happen between a man and a wife, and that's in that context. They become one flesh, and families are developed, and procreation continues. Now, just because one becomes a Christian and the other doesn't, doesn't mean we throw out marriage. And therefore, you should not, as Christians, divorce your spouse. And they were thinking, well, i got to divorce my spouse because he keeps wanting to have sex with me. Well, you're married. You should have sex in your marriage. That's where they were off the road. Now, it gets a little more and more complicated as Paul says, of course, a man shouldn't put away his wife, and a, husband, uh, or a, a wife shouldn't put away her husband. Divorce shouldn't happen. Now, there, he does introduce an exception that we're not quite ready for, he does say, if you are married, and one's a believer and one's not a believer, and one, the unbeliever, decides to leave, then that unbeliever is free to leave, and you are free not to feel responsible or obligated about a divorce because they have deserted you. You don't have control over that. But if that unbeliever is willing to stay with you, then you stay with them. So you get the picture. We don't, as believers, advocate for divorce under any circumstance. We will even and should stay married to someone who's not a believer, who doesn't believe like we do, because we value marriage, and we value that relationship, and we'll maintain it, do everything we can. And in that context, we'll try to be a witness to the grace of Christ in the midst of a, a marriage that's unequally yoked. But we won't dissolve that marriage. If somebody does leave who's an unbeliever, not a believer, you never have the right to dissolve a marriage. But if an unbeliever, well, I wouldn't say you never have the right, but you know what I mean. In this situation, just because one's a believer and one's not a believer, the believer doesn't leave the marriage. And if the unbeliever leaves the marriage, then that's your guarding, governing principle is peace. And you let that marriage dissolve. Now, the tricky verses, and I don't know that I have a lot of time, so I'll just point them to you and maybe we'll talk about it later. Verse 14 and verse 16. Verse 14 is always interesting. For the un if an unbeliever and a believer stay together in a marriage, why is that good? For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her, uh, her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. What does that mean? Does that mean that they have salvation because their spouse is a believer? I think that's going too far because of verse 16, which says, How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband by staying together? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife by staying together? 
But there is a blessing. There is an experience of grace and God's presence by the believer being in the house with the unbeliever. There is an openness, at least a conversation, a recognition by at least one of the the spouses in the family, that God is gracious, God is good, and the kids will probably experience some kind of church and some kind of experience of who God is. And that is a sanctifying effect on the marriage. Sometimes we think, well, and that means that if we have an unbelieving spouse, evil will get into the marriage. But Paul says, no, don't worry about evil. What's more important is that God's grace will be evident in the marriage. So these are the instructions that Paul lays down. If you're divorced, don't. If you're married, don't divorce. Remain as you are when you are called. And as I said, there's a lot there. So we even kind of have an opening to a, a, a justification for divorce if an unbelieving spouse leaves. And that's... A fascinating part. So now the last part. Verses 17 through 24, which will take us to the end. Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Singularly, similarly, the one who was free when called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Brothers and sisters, each person is responsible to God, should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Okay, so that's, that wraps up our little section and what I think about this last section verses 17 through 24 is that Paul is saying that that phrase that we have said many times bloom where you're planted Paul is saying it's fascinating to count up in verse 15 through 24 just those short verses 15 to 24 Paul talks about being called nine times In the whole rest of 1 Corinthians, he only talks about being called three or four times. He talks about being called nine times in this passage. In the whole book of Romans, he talks about being called eight times. Nine times in like, what, uh, nine verses? He talks about being called. What's he getting at? saying that something powerful, something wonderful happens to you when you become a believer in Jesus Christ. You are called by the Spirit of God. You are convicted by the truth of God. And you trust in Christ. And you have been made God's people. And don't let your circumstances govern your relationship with God. 
If you're uncircumcised, stay uncircumcised. It doesn't matter. If you're married, stay married. If you're single, stay married. Because the power of the gospel is to be seen in our lives. And it's to be seen in our lives through transformation that happens to us in our lives. Don't get tricked into thinking that you need to get another married partner or you need to get out of your marriage or you need to get a different job or you need to join a different religion that that's the secret. No, the secret of the gospel is the call of God on your heart and in your life that transforms and changes you in the situation in which you are living. So the possibility and the opportunity for you and me is to be completely Christian right where you are. Bloom where you're planted. And yes, we have a variety of temptations and difficulties. Maybe you have a spouse that's not a believer. Don't try to get out of that. Bloom where you're planted. Because the power and wonder of the gospel can be seen in each and every situation we find ourselves. Look to Christ. Yield your heart and your life to Him. Let His life flow through you in whatever situation you're in. For there is the power of the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You that You are a God of grace and love. We thank You that You change us and transform us and make us new. Lord, we pray that as we draw near to you and as we learn more about your work in our lives, as we learn to trust in your sacrifice and to know who you are and allow you to live through us, that all of the blessings of life, marriage, and singleness, and relationships with one another can be profoundly transformed because of who you've made us to be, your people. Lord, I know that you're longing for this church, that there would be a picture of the gospel, of the truth, of your love and your grace extended to us in Christ Jesus by the lives of your people who have been transformed and changed in every situation. You can do that, Lord. We trust in you. We ask you, do that in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs>